Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paul Hawksby. And Andy Jacobs. And welcome once again to the H&J Daily here on TalkSport. It was a really sad day, wasn't it, in the world of football? The news this morning that Gordon Banks yes, had died. absolutely. So we started with a reflection on... Uh, Meeting Gordon ourselves, and, yeah, you know, and of course, what a great player he was. And Absolutely, he'd have contributions throughout the show from people who knew him and called him uh, George Cohen and, and and other people who joined us today. Um, uh, also, we launched the H and J Book Club, oh, uh, yes. a regular feature with Luke Moore. You'll know from the football ramble and of course the season ticket here on Talksport every Friday. And uh, the first book we looked at was The Damned United. So uh, we, you'll hear that. Phil Hewitt popped in to see us. He is the author of a bestseller called Keep On Running. He's also written Outrunning the Demons, told a traumatic story oh, that he went through. story, that was. And uh, how running was his saviour and how it has been the saviour for other people as well. So I hope you find that interesting. <laughs> and we got into a bit of a pickle about a posh waste of ink to the Times. Yeah, it, it, honestly, <laughs> it took a different turn, as you'll discover. Here it all is. <laughs> Yeah, good afternoon, Paul. It is very, very sad news, wasn't it? We have to start with that, I think. And uh, we were lucky enough to meet Gordon on a few occasions. We interviewed him, and then uh, well, first time was, was it it, when we were yeah, well, mm. Aintree, yeah, we went we went along to Aintree for the the Friday before the Grand National, and uh, Gordon and Roger Hunt were there. They both worked for the uh, Pauls panel. They were like the Pauls panel, yeah. They exactly. would meet. Mm. They would meet every week, and mm. uh, in case games were were uh, snowed off or called because off, because it was more, you know, it was it happened more often yeah. than in the old days before the pitches improved. It did, and they, um, yeah, it was those kind of. It was lovely to see him, wasn't it, for the first time and have yeah. a chat with him there, and then subsequently we started doing this job and. And we're fortunate enough to interview him a few times. As recently as we said, about 18, 19 months ago, he came in with... Uh, and he was in Russia, Jeff. of course, for the draw. We were there as he well. He was, in yeah. Moscow, yeah. And so, uh, I, he, I mean, as people have been saying today, he was a, a truly lovely fellow. There was no side to him at all. There was no, I'm the great Gordon Banks. I no. won the World Cup. He was... And he, whenever we talked about modern keepers, it was never, oh, not as good as in my day. He was always very kind of... There was goalkeepers he liked. He was honest. Mm. That's what I yeah. used to find. If it was a, a keeper he thought was coming up short... For England, he would say so. He'd have an honest yeah. appraisal, but I, I, I always got the sense, and from what other goalkeepers have said today, like Ben Foster and 
Paul Robinson and stuff. He he was respected, and when they got a chance to have a chat with him, they hung on his every word. So. A very nice tribute from our old friend Bob Wilson this morning with Max, and we'll yeah. play a bit of that later because he describes that save in a kind of technical way, which I found fascinating. Yeah, really, really interesting. Now, there is a, there is a bit of a thing, of course, you find these days where you know other things happen in life, and then a little bit of revi- revisionism goes on, and then you look back at an old piece of footage and you say, yeah, but. It was this, it was that. It was in 1970. Players couldn't head the ball as hard then. That's rubbish. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I don't think any of us are having it with the bank save. I mean, every time I watch it, it kind of defies physics. No, it's, it's an absolutely brilliant save. No question about it. And um, I think uh, Gordon would have been disappointed at the goalkeeping last night, actually, in that game. Both goalies had a bit yeah. of a mare with the goals. It's strange so. with mm. Dubravka because, again, he had the mistake against Spurs, but he's had a great season. He pulled off very similar saves, two very similar saves for a crowd of bodies. Mm. And you thought he's got his mojo back because he pulled off two good stops last night in the oh, game. Yeah. Thought, oh, you know, he did well to hold on to those. There was a lot of Newcastle, sorry, a lot of um, Wolves players waiting to get the rebound. I felt for Newcastle last night, really. They, honestly, they, they deserved to win. They did. Wolves were lucky. I see Nuno kind of reinventing it in that manager's way. They did create way. a lot of chances, though, Wolves, didn't they? <sighs> Not really, did they? I mean, they had some half chances. Doherty was a good chance, but it was a great clearance from Longstaff, who really impressed, actually. But he, he just said, uh, in the last minute, we started putting balls into the box. We got the goal we deserved. That put some justice in the game. I was thinking, oh, you'd be hard pushed to say Ever- um, Newcastle didn't deserve to win that match. But Did you think, I'd oh, mate, Mark Housley didn't think it was a foul? What did you think? Uh, which one? Oh no, the, the goal. <clears throat> it's difficult because uh, they they analyse it brilliantly on Sky. I mean, when mm. you watch it in real time, it's not a foul. When you watch it and you stop it, then he's got his arms right over him, and it does look like a foul. So yeah, it shows you how hard VAR's going to be for things like that. But I think I think he should have just punched it, as they said. No question about it. We always say, "Why is he trying to catch it?" Yeah, <laughs> normally it's the other way round. Yeah, why is he it? trying to punch it? Rather, yeah, yeah of no, course. exactly. You're always but, thinking, "Why but, do they do that?" Never mind. Uh, in other news, Desert Island Discs has been voted the best ever radio show, followed by The Archers. We were third, apparently. It's not bad. Is That's it? good. They didn't mention third, though, did they? <laughs> no. That's good. John Sherwood. Who cares who's third? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's one of those. No, we weren't third. No, no, I think the listeners, <laughs> the listeners know that we weren't third. <laughs> Safe to say. Yeah. That's true. And uh, a bloke who won the Suns uh, recreate a famous <laughs> portrait uh, competition mm. came up with the perfect mm. way of doing it. This is always the best way to win a, a, a competition in a tabloid newspaper. It says, judges voted Alastair Slack's selfie, Alexander Slack's selfie rather, with a collar made from the sun. <laughs> nice, can I have a look? No, well, you can't. I haven't got the picture. Oh, okay, it's radio. It's basically a rough. So it's, he's it's made one, a rough collar. Yeah, it's he? a sort of Rembrandt, a famous thing with a rough, and he's done it out, made it out of pages of the sun. Oh, I know. Nice touch, yeah. It's always good. It's actually going to be on show in the Rembrandt Museum. Isn't it? Have you heard anything back yet from uh, the Royal <laughs> no, Academy no, no, Summer Exhibition? No, no. Have you not even had an acknowledgement for your. Oh, you yeah, know, I've had an acknowledgement. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, a bit of a laugh on it, a laughing emoji. Who's among the, Who's among the judges? Do you know who the judges oh, no are? No idea. I mean, they've got to they've got to whittle it down. They get something like about twenty thousand entries, right. and then they whittle it down to about four thousand. Then they have a final. It'd be great if you get in, won't it? I won't get in. Well, why can't you've got as good a chance as anybody <laughs> else? Any chance at all? Andy's doodles that he does. <laughs> in case you've missed this, folks. Andy sits here and rather mm. than listening to me or the guests, doodles during uh, the show. Very <laughs> it's not true. But there's been moments anyway. This. But he doodles and. They're, they're, they're quite good. They're quite quirky. And mm. one or two of the listeners have ended up sort of getting free ones, haven't they? Oh, yeah. You've sent them on. No, that's true. But um, he sent them to the summer exhibition at the Royal Academy. Look, it's a, it's a punt. And how much was it per entry? 
40 quid. 35 quid. 35 quid. It's cost me 70 quid. Just as an experiment, really, to see whether. Because, you know, art, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Art, you, know, some, you can look at something and think, what a load of old rubbish, but somebody else will think it's brilliant. That's it's true, genius. Andy. That is the very crux yeah. of it. So, um, yeah, we will be. Uh, we'll keep you in touch with that, of course. Leonardo da Vinci's doodles. Are to be has, made he, in, has he put one in? <laughs> no, they're to be made into stamps. Are they? To be, to be fair, they're better than mine. It'd be great, though, wouldn't it? I'm not so sure, actually. One or two of yours, they stand up with his early work. Yeah, you reckon? Yeah, when he was about three. <laughs> the Hawksby and Jacobs Daily Podcast from TalkSport. Hawksby and Jacobs here on TalkSport. Coming up uh, in the second hour of the show, we kick off the H&J Book Club this afternoon. Uh, we, as we were saying earlier on, we often get asked about uh, authors we've had in the studio and books we like and say, you know, you guys read a lot of sports books for the show. Anything you want to recommend? And we thought, OK, well, let's open this out a little bit. We do mm. uh, have an awful lot of guests on the show and talk about great books. So let's revisit some, uh, as well as looking at new releases uh, and sort of different genres, because sport is full of great writing, probably more... Uh, now so than ever you know there's so many great sports books out there at the moment being yeah. written every year so uh, we're going to kick off with the damn united david peace's uh, book a kind of faction wasn't it and um, which caused a few issues which we'll chat to a bit uh, about uh, with uh, luke moore who you'll know from uh, the football ramble and our fine show every friday here on talk sport with uh, laura woods and danny kelly the season ticket um going to be luke's going to be guiding us through this and uh, we'll chat about the book we'd love your thoughts on that as well talksport.com text 81089 you can tweet TSH and J um, and get in touch this afternoon <clears> and uh, we'll get you involved in the conversation about that book and of course other books as we do it each week and now uh, Colleen Rooney has decided uh, not to call off a holiday following a, a row with Wayne because uh, it's got to be at least three weeks since the last one. Oh come on Andy that's a cheap <laughs> shot it's a cheap <laughs> shot it's a good shot it's <laughs> Honestly, though, she does love a holiday. I think it was about 11 times last year, but there you go. Right. Well, well, why it's, not? It's not affecting your life as you have as many holidays as she likes. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and um, whoever designed, whoever signed off the design for Brighton and Hove Albion's rain poncho needs to have a word with yeah, themselves, that, honestly. That is, yeah, that's... The, 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 don't go for a pointy white... No, <laughs> in, in any circumstances, <laughs> I think somebody... Never a the, great look. Uh, yeah, I, I remember Max Rushton was making the point. Maybe do it in blue. <laughs> do it in blue and no one's going to draw any thing, isn't it, that no one noticed it? You know yeah. I mean? It is odd, though. Right? It may be just being the nature of the way that one's uh, uh, being worn. I don't know. <laughs> it shouldn't and be as pointy as that. A lot of people have pointed out that Roman Abramovich, you know, he's not around much now for obvious reasons. He yeah. can't come into the country or he doesn't want to come into the country. And... Uh, and it does seem to be affecting the team. But I was thinking, you know, it's a pity because he was a really good hands-on owner. He was, you know, much better when he was hands-on. And I think he should basically go and do his pro license and come back as a kind of Israeli coach. Yeah, well, Avram Grant. Like, yeah, well, sort of yeah, Avram Grant could be his, you know, his assistant. Yeah. <laughs> They've been Not making the happen. point. I mean, a lot of pieces in today's papers about uh, where this leaves um, Sari. And, of course... You do wonder whether the Chelsea hierarchy will look at what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has done, a very different maybe approach mm. to... There's been a few... St- I didn't realise they were training at three o'clock in the afternoon, Chelsea. Have you seen that story? They've been, this has been one of the bones of contention. Yeah. It's got this mad idea that they should train on the day of the, of the game. It's just, 
everything about him, everything that he's so, done. To, uh, the sort of time they, to, to do it at kickoff time. So that's why they're training yeah. in the afternoons. They're just all of it. It's all nonsense. It's all sort of like I'm the only person that understands football. I've invented this way of playing. Well, you haven't. It's called pass and move, mate. A lot of people do it. You know, I don't see any difference between the way Wolves try and play, by the way. No. A lot of teams try and play. I just think it's a load of old rubbish, you know, that you can't switch between systems. You can't do. I personally, I. I if it was me, I'd get rid of him today. I just really, do, I don't see it at all. I can't see any way of him turning this round. We well, seem to be. It always seems to be that kind of uh, that sort of anatomy of a of a manager leaving a job. Suddenly, the club starts mm. to leap like a sieve. Over the next couple of days, we'll start finding stuff out we didn't know before. Well, one thing about Conte, which singled him out, is the reason why he's won stuff and why sorry he never has. Is you know, the, Conte went into Chelsea. He saw what he had. He tried to sort of play the way the players wanted to play, but then he realised the players he had, and he devised a system which suited it, partly his system, partly suited Chelsea, and it worked. And, you know, if the club had decided to back him rather than, you know, force him into the, what they forced him into, yeah, it would have been a lot better. But, well, we'll uh, see what happens. Strange thing last night, Moutinho taking yeah. a corner, mm. and uh, none of the ball was touching the line on this corner. I was going, that is ridiculous. Ridiculous, and then later, so either either they noticed Graham Scott and his officials, or someone said to them at halftime, "You better watch what he's doing because he's not even putting it anywhere, even touching the line." Wow. So every time he took a corner, either Graham Scott came over to him or the linesman pointed, because it does give you an advantage. That you know, if, mm. you're, if you're playing it outside of the quadrant at a certain angle, it's completely different as it would be if it was yeah. a normal corner. So uh, well done to him. I thought actually Graham Scott always been his biggest fan. I thought he had a good game last night. Mm. A good decision on the penalty claim. I thought that Atsu got the ball. And also the same with Longstaff. He could have been done for foot up. It was a brilliant clearance though because Doherty would have scored. It did look, uh, in real time, that did look like a pen, didn't it? I mean, when you, you kind of see what the referee has to see. So you look at that, you watch the player collapse yeah. under attack and you think, oh dear, that doesn't look good. But then good. you see how much, he, how much he got of the ball. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. It was brilliant. a good tackle. Uh, bloke, we had a lovely waste of ink to the sun with a couple today. Hmm. Uh, Billy Goodband wrote in. He said, "I'm convinced." Billy Goodband. That's his name. That's a great name. Well, he's a good, obviously, a good, he's, he, this is quite appropriate. Actually. Yeah, I'm convinced that any chance the UK has of winning the Eurovision Song Contest is ruined by making our song public weeks before the day of the contest. Hmm. So its impact is lost. Yeah, that's the reason we don't win. There's nothing to do with the fact that they can't stand us and they all vote for each other. Yeah, <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, well done. Yeah, that's the reason. Somebody wrote to the Telegraph, Andy, yesterday, and I, I didn't. I wasn't aware of this rule. It's an unwritten mm. rule, apparently. But this, you know, this this is to a broadsheet newspaper, so bear that in mind. Apparently, Ian Duncan Smith was uh, spotted wearing a trilby. He said, "Mr. Smith, uh, Mr. Duncan Smith may have flouted the unwritten rules by wearing a trilby hat before the Goodwood meeting in July." <laughs> Did you know that was an unwritten? <laughs> no, rule? I didn't. Have you ever know sported that. a trilby in June and thought, oh, "I've gone early. I've gone pre-Goodwood." A slightly better posh waste of ink, though, was James. Carrar, who wrote from Edinburgh, and this was good actually. James Carrar. Well, he was talking about some correspondence that has he got on. a parrot. <laughs> yes. How are you spelling Carrar? C R E R A C R. Yeah, old MacDonald had a farm. C R E R A R. How do you pronounce that? C R. Let me write that down. C R C R. Yeah. C R C R C R. Blimey, this is like C R. No. C R A R E R. We need what's his name? Gareth Chilcott. It sounds like a kind of um, West Country version, Gloucester's version of Pygmalion. If Pat Crary C R A R E R 
O-R. <laughs> if Pat Crerand is Patty Crerand, is Patty Crerand. This place got to be James Crerar. James Crerar? <laughs> That's not a word, James Crerar. They've got some... We've got leave? far too can locked into leave? his name. Let me read his letter. Oh, go on then. <laughs> Oh, we got the boy well, of, of the will to his live. His name's not C.R. <laughs> well, it's not his first name. He's James. Okay, it's yeah. Not, he's not C-R-E-R. C-R-E-R-A-R-U-R. <laughs> yeah. I can't even be bothered to read this now, but it is good. Was he in our heart? <laughs> he said, in response to the letters about the spectators at Twickenham and Murrayfield traipsing in and out of their seats to and from the bars and lavatories, I've decided that I'm too old and unsteady on my feet to attend Murrayfield any longer. However, I much enjoy watching the matches on TV, and in order to make the experience more authentic, I persuaded my young grandchildren to walk across the room between me and the screen, carrying bottles of beer throughout the game. Nice. So he wants to create that feeling that you get at a sport. You know, it is quite annoying that when people keep going for a drink. And... Yeah, I preferred his name. Uh, <laughs> ideally with more vowels, at least one anyway. The Hawksby and Jacobs Daily Podcast. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Hawksby and Jacobs Daily Podcast. Paul Hawksby and Andy Jacobs here on Talk Sports, and uh, this is the first edition of the H and J Book Club. Every week, we'll be looking at uh, a different classic book and uh, some new ones as, as they come along as well, and getting your thoughts. Uh, on them and, and taking your recommendations as well for books we may discuss and ones you've enjoyed and ones you've not been sure about. We're kicking off with The Damn United. It did divide opinion at the time, but it was a bit of a sort of genre breaker in, in football terms, wasn't it? Because it's, yeah. it's kind of based in fact, but it's sort of faction, isn't it? It's clearly uh, a story seen through the eyes of the author. It's not true, is it? The, lies have been, the, the lines have been blurred in this. Hmm. I mean, obviously written and published in 2006 by David Peace um, and Faber and Faber. And it, and it charts the, four, the ill-fated 44 days that Brian Clough spent at Leeds United following Don Revy after Don Revy had all that success and then went on to be England manager. And it's written in a stream of consciousness style from the fictional Brian Clough's point of view as he tries to impose his will on this group of 
Leeds United players, you know, previously managed by this successful manager. And he famously lasted only 44 days. It was in 1974. And, and along the way, he sort of alienated these key players like Johnny Giles and uh, Norman Hunter and Billy Bremner. Now, each day he's there is a chapter in the book. It's a really interesting study of, 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 a, of a hugely famous character. It sort of weaves, weaves sort of observation and fact with assumed character traits and fiction. So, I mean, clearly David Peace has spent a lot of time studying the man mm. and picking up his mannerisms and his ma- way of speaking and all that kind of stuff. But also, um, he has to weave with it, as you, as you said, Paul, this, this, fiction, this fictional side to him, which I do think makes it uh, justifiably controversial, is, is the way I would say, because... You know, if you're writing a novel and this is a novel and you're writing it and you're building a world and you're building characters and then you're building a narrative, if you then base these characters on people that actually exist, and in mm. the case of some of them, Johnny Giles, who maybe we'll come on to in a moment, who had a problem with the book and, 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 and took legal action, it, it is problematic. It, I mean, you, you, are, you are essentially dining out on those characters that people already know to, 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 get, your, to get your story across, I suppose. And the book is it's a really dark book as well. I mm. mean, if, if you've seen, which the, is very different from the film, isn't it? Absolutely. So the film where Brian Clough is played by Michael Sheen is a more light-hearted. It's very funny in places. It's, it zips along, and it's you know it's almost a nostalgia type piece to the mm. to football in the seventies, centered around this character. But the book is much darker. Mm. It, it portrays Clough to be a man who's driven by. Um, always striving to go one better, to achieve in the hardest circumstances possible, to make it almost difficult for himself. Um, and and the more you go through the book, the darker it gets. So he starts referring to Giles as the Irishman and Bremner as the Scotsman, and it's swearing left, right, and centre. And and obviously the job, the further he goes down the line, the harder the job becomes. The further more he gets entrenched. And anyway, it's 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 it's, it's a really interesting way of going about yeah. things, and it's also punctuated with these flashbacks to when Clough, um, supposedly these incidents in Clough's life that drive him. So him at that, in that terrible game for, for Sunderland, I think against Bury, where he, he, he ruptures both his knee mm. ligaments and ends his career in the early 60s among driving rain and frozen pitches and all yeah. sorts. And It flashes back to that, flashes back to his debates with Sam Longson, who he calls Uncle Sam, who was the chairman at Derby when he had all the success before. So there's lots going on. The, the narrative does flit around all over yeah. the place. We're going to talk a bit about the style of the book in a moment, which is not everybody's cup of tea. If they've read David Peace's book on Bill mm. Shankly as well, they'll know the style of it Yeah, mm. is, is quite difficult to get into. There's an awful lot of kind of repetition. I was just trying to think there's some sort of passages that give you a feel for the nature of the way... Uh, he writes. I mean, there's one little bit. He says, "I so the, great detail about nothing in particular." Yeah. I tilt the chair back on two legs. I tilt the chair back on two legs, and I close my eyes. I close my eyes, and I tilt the chair back. <laughs> you get the idea. You've closed your eyes, and you've but and you think. Wonder oh, why he did it like that. Well, I wonder I, what he's about. I think that's very much his kind of style. Yeah. If you read his other stuff, that's the way he tends to write. Don't you feel that? sometimes that's how the human mind works as well. So you, you find yourself repeating stuff over in your mind and, and you're establishing things. I mean, there's a bit that I, I pulled out here, which I obviously won't read the swear words as part of it, but if yeah. you can imagine it's littered with swear words as well. Mm. Irreplaceable, irreplaceable. Derby County have finished ninth, scoring 56 and conceding 54. Irreplaceable. The symmetry being so, no consolation whatsoever because there is no consolation. No consolation for not winning. That's irreplaceable. It's, 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 mm. it's, it's giving you an idea that the man is driven just singularly driven by this idea that he wants to be successful yeah. and 
almost a sort of... Do you know what? When I reread this last week, do you know what it put me in mind of? And I hate saying this because we, we never go more than five minutes without saying this man's name on this radio station whenever I'm on it. It reminds me of a prototype Jose Mourinho. Really? That's what it reminds me it's of. interesting. I always said that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I saw such similarities between yeah. the two men. I mean, it was... Yeah. Incredible, really. Let's just play a little bit. This is a bit from the from the very start of the book. It's actor Owen Teal. I think it was a reading of the book, the David Peace's book. And uh, this kind of gives you a little bit of an insight into it. There it is, from the motorway, through the windscreen. Hateful, hateful place. Spiteful, spiteful place. Elland Road, Leeds, Leeds. Leeds. I've seen it before, been here before, played and managed here six or seven times in six or seven years. Always a visitor, always away. Hateful, spiteful place, flecked in their phlegm. <laughs> it's it's a kind of a bit Shakespearean listening to yeah, it like that. And you yeah. did, there was a play of it. And you sort of felt it was it would have worked as a play because it's this kind of this man's inner dialogue. You could see it being staged and it working just like that. It's an exceptional uh, piece that because Owen Teal, who plays Jorah Mormont in Game of Thrones, is a very similar in voice and timbre to, mm. to, to how Clough actually yeah. spoke. And so, yeah, it, it, you know. The, the way this the, the Brian Clough comes across in this, and you know, you, you see the quotes on the cover of from the Times saying the best novel ever written about sport and the novel that brought the legend back to life. But the key word here is novel. It is a novel. It's supposed mm. to be. It's supposed to be fictional. Yeah, he's based it on this on this on this guy. And and you know, maybe if we if we talk a little bit about how certain people portrayed in the book were unhappy about how they were portrayed, and I suppose with. Given the book was written and published after Brian Clough passed away, the libel issue isn't isn't necessarily a problem because of because Clough's no longer with us, sadly. Yeah. But people like Johnny Giles, who asked very much their live one of the mm. sort of elder statements of Irish football and and um, and comment and, and pundits and commentators and all that kind of stuff, he was very unhappy with it. He was very unhappy by the way everyone was portrayed within it, mm. um, to the point of where he he claimed he had been libelled. And and anyway, there was there was a, a case that was settled in which the publishers amended some of the passages within the book in the republishing of the book in two thousand eight without admitting any liability. So Peace has very deliberately skirted this line here. I mean, he's done it on purpose. He's blurred the lines on purpose to mm. give such gravitas to what is a very interesting story. Yeah. But and it's based on fact. I mean, the fact yeah. is he went there. Yeah. He was only there for 44 days. Yeah. It was a particular club where the, mm. the players did rule the roost. We so know that. Some mm. of the listeners have read it. Matt Paul has been in touch. He said, it's a great book. It really puts you back to what it would have been like in that time. The two stories being played out side by side, showing the contrasting fortunes of professional sport. Puffy was great, a great personality, so the book pretty much wrote itself. Um, this comes from Gab Cancello. The damn United is as close to reality to football as the Da Vinci Code is to religion. <laughs> Having said that, unlike the Dan Brown novel, it's not predictable and always holds the interest with Clough coming over as both confident and insecure simultaneously. I think yeah, the, thing, an element of the thing about but Brian Clough was a really eloquent guy. You know, you, yeah. When you read the book, the nature of it, that inner dialogue, you think, well... You know, this was a man who could talk for 10 minutes without repeating himself. Yeah, yet the whole nature of him in this book is a. Is it, yeah, so it's very stylized, isn't it? But one of you guys mentioned earlier the idea of it being like almost like a Shakespearean type tragedy. Mm. Because, and, and, and it does a very good job with that because we do know, of course, as you mentioned, Andy, the, the, we know the story. We know how it starts, we know how it ends. Everyone knows that. It's one of the biggest parts of football folklore in this country. But the way it's built up, he doesn't talk about. So each chapter is a day, as I mentioned earlier, but the way it's built up, it, 
throughout the sections of the book is every game, because of course he only managed for, I think, seven league games. Mm. Every game isn't called a game, it's called a reckoning. Yeah. And at the end of each section, it says the fourth reckoning. And it's got a, a poem on the other side. Because obviously most of the time, if not all the time, the results are terrible and it's just getting worse and worse for him. So yeah. there is definitely a very tragic, um, Shakespearean tragic type feel to it throughout the book, allied with this darkness of his mindset, which becomes darker and darker as we go along, of course. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you look on as history tells you that it didn't, affect his career no, no, particularly no, badly no. what he went on to achieve well before or after I mean no, before of or afterwards he was, he was yeah. very successful in yeah, and, yeah, and, and yeah, the greatest England manager we never had and all that kind we of stuff we ought to mention Duncan Hamilton's book because the family and Duncan hated this book yeah, yeah. and Duncan wrote his own book provided you don't Duncan kiss me Duncan work, worked didn't he yeah. with Brian uh, for years Nottingham newspaper, that's right and yeah. it's also an excellent book so yeah. if you want a, a different view we'll a yeah. more factual oh, view absolutely I think I think if you want a factual report and and a biographical account of Brian Clough, the man. Yeah, it's 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 Duncan. But that's Walt. Uh, to be mm. fair, Duncan, that's kind of Walt of there's, there's a warmth to it, and and it's mm. written with love. But it, it is, you know, it, it they shows all sides. Yeah, book, shows all yeah. sides uh, of him. So. Another really exhaustive um, book about Clough is Jonathan Wilson's "Nobody Ever Says Thank You," which is a, a doorstop thick. It's mm. absolutely exhaustive, brilliantly researched, and that really gets to the cut, cuts to the core of what the man was like in reality as well. This book isn't that, but I don't think it means it's any less worth reading. You know, I mean, no. it's a fantastic novel, and that's, that's, that's essentially what it's designed to be. Larry says, uh, read it when it was released. It still makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Uh, you can throw all your medals in the bin yeah. bit. is pure yeah. cloth. Iconic, and uh, yeah. These, those things, imagine, you kind of, you know, you do feel that that was probably close to the truth. And so, the interview that you mentioned as well. Sorry, Paul. Yeah. The, the that he did on the day that would never happen now yeah. yeah this is the day he went in with Austin Mitchell didn't he on uh, calendar and calendar on, on and with Logan. with Don Revy and Cluffy sat down and they sort of after he'd gone the day gone they sat down the it's three f- of them and it, it's yeah. a fascinating television show that I mean, you couldn't the, have seen Jose possibly no. for different reasons legal reasons <laughs> going straight into a studio <laughs> that a, day and talking about there's it there's a fantastic bit at the start where Austin Mitchell introduces it and uh they start talking, Clough and Revy, and after that, about three or four minutes, Don Revy makes a point, and Austin Mitchell tries to cut in, and Don Revy just cuts him down. Says, "I'm not finished." And, they, and, and from that moment on, yeah. he's absolutely pointless in being there because they just go back and forth to each other the whole time because they're such rivals. Not only were they rivals, and you guys would know this better than me, they had such different styles as well: different yeah. styles of football, different styles of approaching the game, different ways of carrying themselves, different approaches to discipline, all that kind of stuff. They were they really were polar opposites, and for Brian Clough to go into Try fill Don Revy's shoes. Looking back on it now, it just looks like a preposterous decision yeah. from start to finish. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but um, but it happened, and and that interview, which we should probably share from on the Twitter or something like that. Yeah, it's available to watch on YouTube. It's mm. absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well. we will put that out there through TSH and J. So I think in in summary, uh, the, the style takes a bit of getting used to, but it is worth it. So stick with it if you think, oh, I'm not sure, uh, because it does pay out. It's uh, the Damn United by David Peace, the Hawksby and Jacobs Daily Podcast. Talks me and Jacobs here on Talksport. Phil Hewitt is with us in the studio. He's the author of a fine book called Keep On Running that I'm sure many of you have read. Outrunning the Demons, uh, Lives Transformed Through Running is his uh, latest book. And uh, Phil, good afternoon. Hi, really good nice to see, to see you. you. Thank you. I um, uh, Your book starts just outside Newlands after you've gone to watch a cricket match in, in Cape Town and it did send a bit of a shiver down my spine. My, myself and my wife trying to see a rained-off T20 <laughs> game at Newlands uh, a couple of years ago. 
and we were outside the ground and we couldn't find a taxi anywhere. It's not easy to find a taxi. I recognise that. Yeah. Popped into a filling station and uh, said, can we get a cab here? And the guy said, oh, no, I think everybody's gone there. It's pouring rain. The cricket was off, so you won't find anybody around here. You didn't try walking back? No, I no, didn't. No, we no, cut no, a long story short, we did <laughs> in the end manage to get back into Cape Town because it's about half an hour outside of town now. Oh, further than that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, put, I, I put that out there because uh, you were in this situation and did decide to walk back into yeah. well it was Cater. my first time watching England cricket abroad and I think I was just on such a high that I just kind of left my brains in the ground and yeah. it was just so elated fantastic day England had lost but it didn't matter I was there and it's such a beautiful ground I just thought didn't see any taxis didn't see any buses so I thought I'd prolong the pleasure and walk which was desperately naive and yeah. anyone from that area would know that's a stupid thing it, because to do. Cape Town itself is it's, you know yeah. not that bad is it I mean uh, I, I don't know. I, th- I, I mean, you can I get mugged. You can, you can, you can get, get into get trouble anywhere. anywhere. Yeah, yeah. But sure. the walk back, yeah. the, certainly the walk back in on the main route back into Cape Town from Newlands, you do go past some fairly sketchy areas. And that's, yeah. that's well, the worst thing was after about three miles, was, the only way in was to walk beside a motorway. And that yeah. was pretty scary, sort of wobbling along on the hard shoulder. And then the hard shoulder stopped. And I scrambled up onto a bank and looked across the motorway and could see a little path on the far, far side. So legged it across eight lanes of motorway and scrambled down the, in the bank on the far side and ended up in a place called District 6, which I kind of recognised because it's just desolate, open, rubble, wasteland, nothing there. But I could see Cape Town in the distance mm. on the horizon. I was walking towards it thinking, well, at least I know where I am and heard a pitter-patter of footsteps behind me. The bloke ran up and seemed to punch me a couple of times, and I went over with the force of that. I pulled him over, and he started kicking me in the stomach, and yeah, just kicking, kicking, kicking. And I let go of my camera, and I looked down and saw that he hadn't punched me at all. He'd actually stabbed me, Good and my leg was just covered in blood. And because I'd pulled him over, I think I'd really annoyed him because he got to his feet with my camera and then just stood there and kicked and kicked and kicked wow. some more. And, and you, you uh, thankfully, someone came to your aid. You talk about that in the book, but you kind of suffered effectively. Mm. I was sure a lot of people do after something as traumatic as that, a kind yeah. of form of PTSD, didn't Absolutely, you? Absolutely, yeah. And I think the odd thing is it really hit me once I got home. You sort of staggered through the rest of the week, literally staggered through the rest of the yeah. week with a couple of stab wounds in my leg and three broken ribs. And then I think, you know, once that starts here, well, you realise the real damage isn't the physical, mm. it's the mental. And just so many things I wanted to know about what happened, you know, who this guy was, why he did it, what his background was, what he did with my camera. You know, and there was about 300 pictures of the cricket. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you ever find any of the answers to any of those Absolutely things? Absolutely not. No, no, no. That's the whole point. You know, I was wondering when I was lying in all the blood on the pavement, you know, thinking... I could feel my eyesight fading, starting to wobble. And I just felt overwhelming tiredness and just wanted to shut my eyes. You know, would I have died at that point? Possibly, yes. Wow. And those things just go round and round your brain and just built up, built up into just a big panic attack. And, and the book itself really tells, I mean, running was a great kind of tour, wasn't it, for you as you kind of mentally yes. fought your way Absolutely. back from what had happened yeah. to you? So it all exploded into this panic attack and I just knew I had to do something. And I started after that as a reaction to that to just write down all the thoughts, all the feelings, all the worries, all the humiliations and all the terrors. But also as part of that healing, I just went for a run. There's three weeks after, so you know, two great big holes in my leg and hmm. three broken ribs and well, you very were a runner, sore though, stomach already. I, yeah, yeah, I'd done thirty marathons. Yeah, that sure. Yeah, I'd always run, yeah. always run, and just I just needed to get back to it. Yeah. Just getting out there. It was a lovely spring morning. Uh, well, three years ago this week, the, the actual attacks and Valentine's Day of all wow, days. Wow. And, you know, three weeks later, just 
force myself to go for this run because I just needed to lift all the rubbish that's going around my head and just getting out there and running did mm. that did just something sort of cut through all the nonsense and you know it's, it's not the cure-all but it was just the start of moving on. I and think. you found it to be a universal thing because you've, you've spoken, the book really is a kind of collection of stories yeah, and conversations yeah. you've had with people who Absolutely. went through their own trauma yeah. and, and have used running as a way back. Definitely, it's stories of healing. And I think, you know, the book in a nutshell is it's people who've been to hell but have discovered that the quickest, surest, safest way back is to run. So is it's it a collection... Sorry. I was going to say, is it the endorphins? Is, it, is that what does it? Or is it the discipline, discipline of running? I or? think, yeah, uh, you can research the scientific side, but I'm not sure that gives you all the answers. I think it's much more an emotional thing. That mm. I think when you've suffered severe trauma, you do feel really isolated and you feel incredibly stuck in that moment. Even now, you know, almost more real are the thoughts of being stuck on that pavement, all the blood thinking, am I going to die? It's almost more real than talking to you. But running just connects you i think and it gives you a bit of space of time it gives you freedom and trauma is all about loss of control but running is so lovely because you decide where you're going you decide what color running top you're going to put on hmm. you decide do you turn left turn right etc you decide when hmm. to stop you decide how fast you just regain that control through running and i think that's why running has healed all these people you know, lovely people i've spoken to have been caught up in 9-11 and the boston marathon bombing in a horrible sexual assault one poor girl suffered and abusive relationships and severe illness and depression and addiction but for all these people just running has sort of put them back together to an extent so it's not the cure for everything but it's the step towards sure. uh, empowerment it's how did, taking back control and how did you find these people phil did they did you uh, well, kind of ask for their uh, stories i'm or? afraid it's as crass as just sitting googling explosion marathon rape marathon trauma marathon runner and things like that wow, and just really? compiled a list of good stories that have been somewhere reported and then approached the people and i think the thing that moved me most is just how approachable the people were mm. and how open they were to telling their stories and I think the lovely thing in my mind about the book it's 34 interviews sandwiched by my own experience so it's like 35 runners and in my mind it's like we're all on running this same race but all different stages of our trauma and you know sometimes I might have a bad day and I'll fall back a bit slow and the others move on um, but we're just all going in that same direction towards healing really and yeah. I don't know what's the end of the race but I'm certainly glad I'm running it and the yeah. the, the thing about the, the the Boston I mean you think about Boston Marathon being injured in and caught up in something like a Boston mm. Marathon that's that must really mess with your head because obviously to yeah. go out and run again you've got you've got two yes. hurdles to overcome the yeah. pure trauma yeah. and the fact it happened Absolutely. while you were running yeah well there are two Boston Marathon running stories in there one was a lovely woman who was just in a cafe and was blown up and just became so important to her I mean, to an extent, she wasn't even running it the following year. She was almost crawling it in tears, just pulling herself along in a phenomenally long time. But it was mm. just so important for her, as part of her healing, that she should run that course. And the other Boston Marathon running story is as a woman who completed it on a massive high, high-fiving everyone over. Mm -hmm. She went over the line, tears of joy. And then 10 minutes later, the explosion and people running around shouting, we need blood donations. And she became fixated on the thought that as she had high-fived people on the way towards the finishing line, mm. she possibly high-fived the lovely little boy who was killed. And that thought just tormented her, and the only way she could get over that yeah. was to go back the following year and run it. Amazing. Just to lay that ghost. And yeah, what a powerful image. It's yeah. powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, it's a sense of achievement each run 
completed as well, I think. So, you know, there's a sort of satisfaction in, do, in doing any exercise that once you've oh, done yeah. it. Because there's always that thought of, oh, I don't fancy this today. It's freezing. It's this, that, and the other. But when you've done it, there is a, yeah. a well, I think the true runners know that they'll feel worse for not going. Yes, you might not yeah. fancy you, the run, but you'll kick you yourself. Yeah, you don't. You just get it done. Well, Phil, we wish you well with the book. It's, uh, it's a fascinating subject, and hopefully it will inspire others if they've found themselves in a similar situation to, to, to get out and run. And, and, and But reading these people's stories and your story, which was fascinating as well, is very interesting. So good to see you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much in. indeed. Really lovely uh, to speak to you. Running the Demons, Lives Transformed Through Running by Phil Hewitt. You've been listening to the Hawksby and Jacobs Daily Podcast. Hear the guys every weekday between 1 and 4 p.m. on TalkSport. There we are. That was the, this afternoon's show. Thanks for downloading us as always. And maybe we should try and get Peter Currer on. Maybe. James Currer. James Currer. Peter's his brother. Yeah. <laughs> Still no. Steena was another vowel, definitely. Okay. Th- uh, we will catch up with you tomorrow. Thanks once again for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.